Good afternoon and welcome back. I hope you had a wonderful lunch. Is this, somebody left a cartoon up here for me. We'll pass it here. <laughs> so. so, how are you? I'd like to hear how the little exercise went over lunch. Well, like, I woke up feeling nauseous today. I have a recurring illness that came back today. And, um, but I'm feeling really happy. So, I felt really happy over lunch. So, I can, I'm, I'm still aware of the discomfort in my body. But, um, there are other portions of my body that are comfortable. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yes, Anna. I felt that uh, mostly when I, when I call joy back, that I slow down mm -hmm. instead of racing to the next step again, what you know, whatever that was in my mind. So it was constantly reminding myself to stay in the present. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you find it easy to do? Kind of. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was easier because of the whole morning, definitely, yeah. uh, to, to, to stay with that. But it does, you know, there's a certain amount of effort required just to stay yes. aware. To so, just, and the word, and the word. It's like a mantra. Mm -hmm. yeah. My lunch was tastier. <laughs> 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 lunch was tastier. That's that's good. See, that's that's a sign that he was he was really present. <laughs> Yeah. The oh boy, I'm back. Yeah, that's right. That's that's and that's what to yeah. that's what to pay attention to. Yeah. Thank you. For that. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit like rubbing two sticks together because you know, have to keep reminding yourself and you know you go back to thinking and being the way you usually are, and then you remember and say, okay, well. Or at least what I was hoping you do is you remember and say, all right, well, what's happening right now? Is what I'm doing, is it making me feel good? Is it making me feel happy? Mm -hmm. uh, if it's not, going to something that does. Uh, but, you know, if you rub sticks together long, long enough, they catch fire by themselves and you don't have to rub them anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that happened to anyone. Beth? Yeah, it's like I have a, a very, uh, like a little ray of sunshine, just, a, just this light, pleasant feeling in my chest, and it doesn't seem much to keep it going. Yeah. It's kind of there. It's small, but small. Nice. Yeah. It's like the first few little tiny flames that began. And if you continue to feed it, and if there's a rain shower comes along and puts it out, <laughs> it keeps on growing. Yeah. Um, what I'd really like to hear is if there's anybody that didn't think much of it, didn't really do anything for it. You mean you, that didn't do much to, to be in that place? That what? That, I didn't understand the question. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that that <coughs> doing that practice didn't really do much for them. They didn't, you know, they all, Anyway, it feels like they tried it, but didn't really seem to work. Didn't really make a difference. Well, that's good. I mean, it's the good side of that. I'm really glad to hear that everybody can see that this is this is something that really does work. Um, means that we don't get to look into the kinds of things that get in the way of it happening. <laughs> So that's all right. That, that opportunity will present itself in, in some other way at some other time. Yeah? Uh, I had a friend home to attend to my dogs. Yes. So I had to, you know, be aware of traffic. And at one point I stopped at a red light, somebody in the next lane had this, you know, really loud, you know, um, horrible music on, <laughs> with mm -hmm. a lot of bass that was vibrating in my car. And I thought, you know, well, that's unpleasant. You know, the light changed, and I pulled 
saying is you question the assumption that it, this goal really has to be realized in the form that you imagine. Yes. Okay. So shift, shifting, the, the, shifting the belief. Yeah. Right? Because mm-hmm. I have a choice. We all have choices about our beliefs. Yeah. So if the belief is, is causing misery, then you shift the belief. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. And, um, but if the belief shifts enough, then the goal will not be attained. Well, that was, that's like going back to the first one you mentioned. You give up the goal. Give up the goal. So yeah. there's this there's this gradation, mm-hmm. and it's it's gray. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Now this this is a really good question. This this is a wonderful question. Comes up for us many times in many forms. Uh, you know when we talk about the goal of this Dharma practice, which is to achieve uh, a state in which uh, there is happiness and there's complete freedom from any kind of craving, any kind of desire and aversion. The problem this presents for many people is, well, sort of variations on it, but how could I survive? How could I do anything? And what would be the point? Yeah, I, I have no reason to do anything. Um, I wouldn't have any motivation. Uh, the idea is that we need the feeling like we need these, uh, we need this experience of dissatisfaction and unhappiness to make us do things. And uh, that's, that's sort of an extreme form of this. But you're, you're bringing down is just a simple thing that, you know, if you have a goal and it's 
not being fulfilled, that's naturally going to tend to make you feel unhappy and dissatisfied. How do you deal with that? Very good question. Um, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with the Dalai Lama. Would you describe him as a joyful, happy being? Anybody have any experience or know anything about the Dalai Lama that would make you tend to suspect that maybe he's not really all that joyful? No. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yes. he, had to leave his country. Yeah, he had to leave his country, right? Well, he had to leave his country. Yeah. But Along with many others. A lot of bad stuff happened, but I mean, when you look at him, is he a joyful and happy person? Yes, absolutely. Really, he's, he is. Does he have a goal? Yes. Has it been fulfilled? No. Has he been working a long time, very hard, in many ways to fulfill that goal? Yes. Does that seem to have stood in the way of his joy and happiness? No. I haven't asked him. You haven't asked him. That's true. Does it seem to have, as the outsider looking in? No. Seems like he's managed to deal with both quite all right. Without a problem. So, you know, granted, we're the outsiders looking in. We can't see inside his mind. But he seems to represent an example that these two aren't in conflict with each other. Now, what is is what is, and what we are is what we are. We can see that some things could be better than they are. And we can do the best that we can to bring about that change. And that's, that's straightforward. All you can do, though, is do the best that you are capable of. This doesn't mean the best that you can retrospectively imagine that you could have done. It's that you do the best that you can in the moment as the moment keeps unfolding. And if you do the best you can, you've done everything you could possibly do. Because what is, is what is, and what you are, is what you are. And if you understand those things, it can't do anything but make you happy. The joy is not dependent upon whether the goal was achieved or not. Your happiness doesn't require satisfaction of the goal. It requires that you you did the best at being you in each moment and that you continue to do so. That's, that's the highest goal of all. It's when we think, when we want to argue with, you know, God, suchness, isness, the way things are. And say, I know better. This should, you know, what I did should have changed things. When we put ourselves in that position, when you want to stand in opposition and conflict to the ultimate, it's not going to be very enjoyable. But it doesn't mean that you can't. As a matter of fact, it means that you must do the best that you're capable of in the moment. Yes? But that brings up a question that, I, that is always, at least on my mind. Am I doing the best that I can? And right. how do I get to that, to that answer? That it is the best that I can? The only way you can moment. find that answer is to be fully aware in the present moment. The problem with looking backwards is you can always think of something else you could have done Theoretically, mm-hmm. but you know what? Most of the time, you couldn't have done that. You can only imagine after the fact that you could have done that. But there are reasons. There are reasons about the person you you are that had to do with why you didn't do that or why you did what you did instead. It's only by being fully mindful and fully present that you can do the best that you can, and be the best that you are in the moment. It's kind of funny how it comes actually down to exactly the same thing. 
Uh, you really, you, you can't look back and you can't look forward with any kind of certainty. The person that you are now is not the person that you were five years ago. You know, you can look, we can review our lives. We can look back and say, well, the biggest mistake I ever made, shouldn't have married that guy, or <laughs> should have stayed in school, or I should never have bought that car, or, you know, whatever it was. You can always do that. But that is so incredibly unrealistic. That's just as unrealistic as projecting how things are going to actually happen in the future and what you're going to do and what you're, what you're going to be then. We might learn from looking at our past, but the only time that we can know that we are doing the best that we can is when we are fully conscious in the present moment to the degree that you're not capable of being fully conscious in this moment. You are not necessarily going to do the best that you could have done. What can you do about that? Well, you can try to be more fully conscious in the next moment. And that's really all you can do. That's the only thing you can do. If you're fully conscious in this moment, if you're fully present, if you know yourself, you will be the best that you can. And even if you're not, you'll be the best that you can, can with the degree of consciousness that you have in this moment. So when you look back at it, you are what you are, and it's fine. It's perfect that way. It's absolutely perfect that way. And whatever's going to happen in the future is also absolutely perfect. The whole universe and the way it's unfolding is absolutely perfect. And all you can do, all you need to do, all you want to do, all you care about, is to be as perfect a part of it as you can, as you can, as it unfolds. So, try to keep that in mind, and especially when you start finding yourself judging things like this. Beth. Well, I have a question, and you, you might have answered that indirectly, um, but I. I'm not sure still. Uh, you know, you mentioned that there is nothing wrong about expectations. That expectations should just be in sync with our abilities, or should be mm -hmm. adequate to our abilities. So, both in meditation and in real life. Um, but as far as meditation, how do you gauge it? That they are in sync with, with each other. Yeah. Well. Meditation is the practice of learning, learning to understand yourself and your mind so that you can create it. Uh, the most important thing about meditation isn't that you succeed in performing the practice according to the instructions. It is what you discover in the process of trying to do that. You know, if the instruction is pay, your atten pay attention to the sensation of the breath and don't lose awareness of it, it's not a question of if you do that for 45 minutes you have succeeded, but if you can't do that you fail. It's try that and discover what happens. Because this is going to open up to you the understanding of what what, what your mind really is, how it really works, what reality really is, what has happened with everything else in your life that you've tried to do. Because you try to do it, and to a certain degree it works, and to a certain degree it doesn't. So in that process, you'll discover, you'll come, you know, if you do it, uh, if, if, if you do it for a while, you begin to discover what expectations of yourself are realistic and, and what aren't. But that will constantly change. The real discovery is not, ah, oh, this is what I'm capable of. It's rather, it's, ah, oh, this is what I can do now. Because it changes all the time. 
in meditation, some, some days your ability to stay focused and your ability to stay clear is really, really good. And other days it's not really so good. And at first you don't know where to put your expectations. Yesterday it was really, really good. So you sit down today and say, I expect it to be that way, but today it's not. So what you're really learning is not what your expectations should be in general, but how to recognize where you are in the moment. What is, is my mind agitated today? Is my mind dull today? Have I got something on my mind that's really chewing away from uh, at me? And you begin to recognize this, and then you know yourself. And then you do the practice on the basis of who you are in the moment and what you're capable of. And the same thing is true in life, you know. And the Dalai Lama's goal is to um, do something about the Chinese oppression that's resulted from the invasion of Tibet and this ongoing calculated program intended to destroy Tibetan culture and Tibetan Buddhism. That's his goal. Day to day, what he can do changes. It changes in terms of the people he's working with and the opportunities to present themselves, and it changes in terms of who he is on any given day and what he's capable of. But what you see him succeeding at over, uh, it must be 1959. Wow, that's 50 years. Over the process of 50 years, he keeps doing the best he can on the basis of who he is today and what the opportunities are today. And that's really the important thing. You know, and that's that is that is the challenge. But this is what he has learned to do. So we, we match we match our expectations to who we are and what reality is in the moment. And we learn it the same way we do everything else. We learn it by sometimes succeeding and sometimes not succeeding and being able to tell the difference. So after a while, we can understand it better and we can, we can do it more consistently. And the, really the times that you don't succeed are, are really very important. If you, if you can learn the lessons of not judging yourself and uh, not being not attaching to unrealistic expectations, then so much learning takes place when you've made a mistake. I mean, do you see, isn't that true of everything in life? You know, the times you succeed only teach you what they have to teach by contrast with the times when you didn't succeed. And it's the combination of the two, really, that allows you to learn and allows you to perfect over time whatever it is that you are, whatever it is that you're doing. Does that answer your question? Yes. You know, I, I have a goal. It started off a few years ago. I felt like I had learned some really important things and I wanted to share those things with as many people as possible. I saw a lot of people who were meditating and not making a lot of progress in it, getting enough, getting enough reward from it that they persisted at it, but in terms of what I knew it is possible to experience through your meditation practice, you know, I, I felt like, well, I really want to help people. And then, you know, I, my goal got bigger and bigger. And I thought, well, you know, in the time of the Buddha, uh, he, he held a, a conclave once at Vulture's Peak where there were uh, 1,200 uh, arhats in attendance. Yeah. And I said, well, gee, you know, that's what the possibility is. So, uh, 
this is this is something I can do. Is maybe I can try to teach people to meditate better and to discover some of the, the truths that I've discovered about the way things really are that have made such a difference in my mind. And this is my goal, and I started teaching, and I've been doing this for a while. And uh, a few days ago, for absolutely no good reason at all, none at all, um, I started looking at this, you know, I talked about states of mind last night to determine what you see, how you interpret what you see, how you feel in response to it. I started looking at the work that I've been doing over the last few years and the results that it's produced. And all I could see was how little progress had been made in terms of my goal. How many people that I had taught in retreats or one setting or another, and and when I looked at it, it seemed like and I'm no good at this at all. Nobody's nobody's making any progress. Well, you know, right now I can't understand how that thought came from because there are in this room right in front of me people that have made great progress and they deserve all the credit for it. But at least. I was the one that was encouraging them and giving instruction and telling them things like that. So I managed to, you know, I managed to apply some of the things we were talking about this weekend to say, well, okay, what's going on in my mind? You know, here I am feeling discouraged, like this is all pointless, like, uh, like you know, wasted effort. You know, all I'm seeing is the half-empty glass, not the half-full one. And, and really, looking back on it, it so distorted my point of view. How could I forget those people who I have had the pleasure of talking to whose lives have been changed in major ways and who have have experienced so much reward from this practice. How could I forget them? Otherwise, what was the matter with me? What kind of blunders came down for a few hours? But but they did. So I looked at my goals and I looked at this mind and how this mind was reacting to its perceptions of how those goals were being achieved. And and then I realized how silly I had been being. Mm-hmm. Had I been doing the best I could? Yes. Was that good enough? Well, that's not really the question. Had I been doing the best I could? Well, yeah, I was. Could I maybe do better in the future? Well, yeah, maybe I can. And should I keep trying? Well, yeah, of course I should keep trying. And does it really matter how it turns out in the end? Well, no, it, it, it's going to turn out perfectly in the end. No matter how it turns out, that's going to be absolutely perfect. That's going to be the way it should be. Who am I to decide how the future is supposed to go? Am I the one that's supposed to determine this? Do I know better than, than the universe how it should unfold? Am I smarter than God? Well, no, I'm not. I can't even begin to get the tiniest grasp of how things really should be and how they should really turn out. You know, should my friends get cancer and die? Well, hey, you know, it's happening. So I guess it must be the way it's supposed to happen. But should I put myself in opposition to that? No, that doesn't do anybody any to be the best that I can while it's happening. I mean, I'm going to get sick and die. We all are. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. Um, If we look back, there's been a lot of pain and suffering. If we look forward, there's probably going to be a lot of pain and suffering. Is it up to us to judge whether that's the way it should be or not? Not really. 
is it up, us, up to us to judge what role we're going to play in this as it unfolds? Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Our intentions are everything. But we go through our lives most of the time asleep. We don't even know what our intentions are. We're on automatic pilot. Our intentions are programming that we acquired when this happened when we were six years old and when that happened in the ninth grade and when something else happened after we graduated from high school. And we're letting that drive us through our lives. So the idea is to, that we don't have to keep doing that. And that let things unfold as perfectly as they're going to. My job, your job, is to be what we can be. And the only way we can do that is to bring understanding and awareness to bring wisdom and consciousness to what we are. That's what this is all about. Then we can hold our goals and we can do our best and we can celebrate their achievement or we can accept their non-achievement. And we can keep on we can keep on trying to fulfill those goals until such time comes that maybe for whatever reason uh, we decide to let go of the goal. Sometimes we let go of goals. Sometimes we get wise enough to realize it wasn't really a very good goal to start with. <laughs> and I know you've all had that kind of goal. I certainly have. Right? Spent years in this, like, this is what I'm going to do. And then one day you realize, you know, that's not worth a fraction of the time and energy I've already put into it. This, let's quit this. <laughs> time is smart enough. Does that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Hannah. What you just shared takes all the pressure off the practice. And when when I read Thich Nhat Hanh before I met you, it was like when he, he was asked by a student, uh, I want to, uh, you know, he was very impatient, the student, I want to really work fast, I don't want to go into the next incarnation, not having solved this, this whole thing. And Thich Nhat Hanh said, every moment, you do your best, like you just said, to do another incarnation. Don't worry about the next incarnation. That's right. You do it right now. And that took all the pressure in my mind of what we do, what we need to achieve. It's just here, right here. Yeah. And you said that so beautifully. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thanks to Thich Nhat Hanh. And thank you for bringing that to us. Because it is. It's so true. And, and really... That's what the Buddha gave us. He took this idea of serial lives and reincarnation and he kind of brought it down to earth. You're reborn every morning when you wake up. You're reborn in every new moment. And that, that's what you need to recognize and appreciate. So don't, don't worry about, don't worry about things that are totally beyond your ability to know and understand. Be here now in the present. Fully realize what's happening here. And become what you are capable of becoming. You see, like those Abhidhamists said, the mental factor of piti is there in every single moment. But there's a lot of other stuff there as well. And piti may be very, very weak to everything else. That's all. It's not that it's not there. It's just that there's other stuff going on. So. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about, you said, uh, be with the flow of experience and flow activities? Yes. Well, it's a really interesting thing, I think, that the folks that started studying optimal experience came up with this term, flow, to describe it. One of the things that I really enjoyed when I came across it, there's a sentence in the book where Csikszent Mihaly says, and I decided to call this flow, and then there's a dash, and he says, not in the Southern California sense of the word. <laughs> Because, and then he goes on to say, 
What I mean is you're totally present and you're putting everything into it. You, you, you know, it's a flow of consciousness. It's a flow of being. Um, being is not static. Being is fluid. Being is constantly changing. But, and, and, and so, to be in the flow of being is to be in this constant state of change and evolution. But it's also the flow of consciousness. Because, well, because that's, that's what we are in any meaningful sense. We are, we are the flow of consciousness, the conscious process. And uh, flow activities, when you are in the flow of something, you are focused, you are centered, you are, are joyful, uh, and you, you're, you're performing exactly the way that you should be. And this is what we want to do in every aspect of our lives. There's certain activities that people engage in that can give rise to this flow experience. But to think of it that, oh, well, now I have optimal experience, I should go out and take up one of these activities so that I can generate the flow experience. No, it's rather studying a whole population of human beings. They discover that this is something that happens in people sort of by accident. People stumble across it. But the point is, not that there is such a thing as optimal experience, and not that a few people can stumble onto a way of experiencing that frequently, and it's not that everybody has little moments when they stumble into it for a little while. It's that we would like optimal experience to be all of our experience. We would like all of our experience to be optimal, right? Mm -hmm. We'd like to be in the flow all the time, in the flow of being, in the flow of consciousness. And we get out of the flow, well, what happens to uh, a flow of water? What happens to a flow of water when it starts going all kinds of different directions, when it runs into obstacles? And it becomes turbulent. What's that? Break? It slows down. It breaks up, you know, the, it becomes chaotic. Chaotic, turbulent, and everything else. And isn't this kind of what happens in our lives, you know? Every now and then we've got this nice smooth flow, everything's working, everything's clicking, and then it all falls apart. <laughs> so, what, what we want to know is, why does it happen? Why does it all fall apart? And what we'll discover is, at first we might say, well, it's because of that darn world. <laughs> yes. It's the world's fault. Every time I get in the flow, the world goes and messes things up. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's not. It's not. We, we lose the flow from inside to ourselves. That's what we want to learn not to do. I can't remember your question while they're talking again. <laughs> no, I, you're covering it. I guess what I was wondering, when you uh, took us into the meditation before um, lunch, I think it was, you said that what you wanted us to do was to be with the flow of experience. Yes. And I was just wondering, is that anything more than being in the present moment with the reality of what is and accepting, being accepting. Um, and maybe this consciousness. Let me ask you something. Is there anything more than being fully present in the reality of the moment? Well, I could see... Um, other than... Um, well... I would say being kind also would be an additional part of it. 
Okay. Well, kindness, compassion, <clears throat> love, all of these things. So are they, let's, ask, let's just ask ourselves the question, um, if they are something different, then we better incorporate them into our game plan. But if they're not, then we can probably expect that if we can be fully present in a place of uh, acceptance of what is and acceptance of what we are, then they should tend to naturally be a part of that. And uh, well, let's let's look at that because it seems to me like they would naturally be a part of that. But maybe we better examine that and see whether or not we think it's true. And I'm open to any, anybody else's suggestion. When you're fully present, to me, what does that mean? Well, that means that my, my ego mind, my ego self, has surrendered to the idea that things are perfect as they are. But that doesn't mean that if somebody in front of me is suffering that I don't do something about it. Why doesn't it mean that? Well, because when I'm fully present, there's not me and them. There's only there's only the, the, the oneness, the totality. There's everything. And so I would respond to somebody else's suffering from where I, from the perspective that I hold in the moment. So here I am seeing that person suffering. And if I can do something about it, I don't have any choice. It's not a, it's not a decision. It's not a, well, should I help them or shouldn't I? Because the decision can only come when it's me and them. When it's us, there's no, no choice. This is what I find. But I want to hear what I want to hear what other people think, how you experience it. Is that sort of what you call the flow? When yeah. when when there's just no decision, it's just you have no choice? Yes. That's an aspect to the flow. Is to be to be fully present in a state of exactly in the here and now and be a part of the whole thing. Not separating yourself out. Not not making the division between I, me, and mine, the self, and the rest of the world, but being totally present with everything. So talk a little bit more about flow experiences Chick sent me Haley described. He says that when people are having this kind of optimal experience, they tend to lose a sense, the sense of self. They sort of become the activity that they're a part of. So, you know, if it's, a, if it's an athlete going into this state, he no longer, or she, is no longer me doing this. It's just, it becomes one with the whole process. Um, so there is this loss of self-awareness. And there's also uh, a shift in the sense of, of time. You know, that uh, time doesn't pass in, in the ordinary way. But there's a very much a stepping out of the usual way of perceiving ourselves and our relationship to everything else. So that's a very important part of a flow activity. And it's also what I mean and think of when I say being fully present. Because when I feel when I feel like there's me in the world, I'm not fully present. I've already divorced myself from the world. I'm only fully present with this little shell I've created. You know, I look at the inside of the shell and that's the world that I see. I don't see the world. I see the inside of the little shell I've created. So to be fully present means to let that fall away as well, to become one with everything. Um, 
Okay, so I see when we use when we say be here now, when we say be in the present, be fully present, all of these things, it has layers of meaning. It, it absolutely means we're not dwelling in some imaginary future and some imaginary past. But that's just the first step of being present. That's just the beginning of it. It goes a lot deeper than that. Because we step out of the imaginary future and we step out of the fantasy of the past and we come into the present. But if we're still in the fantasy of being a separate self apart from everything else, then we're still not fully present. So that's the sense in which that I mean. Now certainly you could be not in the future, not in the past, and not thinking about something somewhere else, and still see yourself as separate and apart from other things, and not experience a spontaneous sense of compassion and loving kindness as a result of that. Yes, you could. But you would, to me, you're still not fully present. So maybe in that, in, if, if you look at being fully present in the limited sense, then yes, there is something more than that. But that something more is not setting yourself the goal that oh, you should be a compassionate being. Rather, it's tearing down the barrier between the I and the other so that compassionate, compassion becomes a part of it spontaneously, naturally. Yes, Hannah? I would like to come back when he asked about the choices. Yeah. Isn't there a difference between presence and um, action? In this example of somebody in front of you suffering, you are present with that suffering, you have compassion, you have you see what's happening. Do you still have a choice if you jump in or not in action? Or there is no choice? Well, it, it, there is a choice from the point of view. A choice is largely an illusion. This idea that I am deciding something is really an illusion. Choice disappears the more the more truly present you are and the less there is the contrived idea of a self, of somebody who's going to decide and choose. Uh, that may be a big piece to, to chew on. Say it again, please. Yeah? Well, because as we start to deconstruct the image of ourself, and we can we find we let go of this piece and we let go of that piece, and we get down to I'm still the agent, I'm the doer. And then even if we start to let go of being the, the agent, well, at least I'm the decider. <laughs> I'm the one that makes the choices. I'll tell you something really interesting about this. I know how real it seems. And I know how difficult it is to accept the idea that that may not be true. But a number of years ago, they did some research on subjects who they were asked to decide to perform a simple action. And the experiment was set up in such a way that they could they could plot on a, on a time course when the person subjectively had the experience of, okay, I've decided to do this action. And then, of course, they could record when the action was done. But they also discovered previously that prior to every action, there's a certain electrical signal in the brain that says, this is going to happen and it can't be changed past that. So they could, put, they could put on the same graph all three of these things. Now what you might think is that first there would be the decision that I'm going to do this. Then there would be the electrical signal in the brain that says the brain is getting ready to initiate the action. And then there would be the action. They didn't find that at all. They found first came the brain preparing to perform the action. And they consistently timed this over and over again. Voluntary actions and involuntary actions and actions that were uh, 
uh, initiated by surprise, and they constantly found there was this interval, it took so many milliseconds between when the brain began the process that would lead to the action and when the action actually occurred. And that was more or less invariant. So when between those, when they put on this graph where the decision came, it happened between those two. Every single time. The conscious experience of choosing to do something always happened between when the brain had already initiated the process of doing it and when the action occurred. So isn't that amazing? Aha, uh-huh. did we ever really choose anything? And what does it mean to make a choice? I mean, that's, you... why, that's why it's in the flow. <laughs> that's right. It's, it, it, that's really part of what's in the flow. You know, if we talk about decisions and how we make decisions, um, a decision comes up, and uh, well, some decisions are no decision at all, right? <clears throat> At the, at the instant the choice presents itself, you always know you're going to choose strawberry ice cream over cat food, right? <laughs> Some decisions are no decision. The ones of interest are the ones that show some possibility of going more than one way. And if we examine what happens in our mind, you know, should I buy this car or not? Right. Uh, should I order the cheesecake or not? all these kinds of decisions, what happens is you start to have a number of different ideas, thoughts come up in your mind, right? Several different ideas will come up, several different thoughts, you know, uh, a lot of calories in that cheesecake, I don't want to lose weight, that's a lot of fat, my cholesterol is a little high, you know, boy would it taste good, especially, oh look, they serve it with cherries, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but I didn't have lunch today, so you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know, but all of these different things come up, and then you make a decision. But what really happens? It's, it's more like a number of different voices, different parts of your mind made their arguments for and against, and somewhere in the process, you know. Sometimes it's the loudest voice just outshouts the rest, and you order a cheesecake no matter what. Or sometimes it's a consensus, all the different points of view on whether or not you should buy the car. Well, there's more pros than there are cons, so yeah, I'm going to do it. Or these kinds of things. It's more like you have, over your lifetime, accumulated all of these different ideas and inclinations. And when it comes time to make a decision, certain ones of them, not even all of them, uh, step forward and present their arguments and some sort of some sort of decision gets made out of that. It's more like a it's more like a, a board of directors. It may be a maybe a majority vote or it may be the loudest chowder, but it, still it's and did you make that decision or was the decision actually made more by things that happened to you in your life, the thoughts you had, uh, the conversations you've had, the articles you've read, all the different sources of information that spoke up in one way or another? What really made the decision? Yes? Yeah? Well, I mean, in the experiment you told us about, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I mean, isn't like some of it, well, I mean, you can say, like, is an unconscious decision. But I mean, isn't some of it hardwired? Haven't they proven, like, you know, their maternal instincts? Is there something in an infant face that just sort of elicits I mean, sure, there's some things, response yeah. from everybody? There's some things that we do that there's no decision involved in it at all. Right. It's like the choice between strawberry ice cream and cat food. <laughs> <laughs> and so many, so many other things like that. So we think we make a decision, but 
the decision is made largely on past experience. But let me point out something else that's happened to you before. Sometimes you make the decision, and then afterwards, some board members that weren't at the meeting show up. Did <laughs> have that happen? Uh-huh. And you think, oh man, why weren't you there before I signed the papers? <laughs> so, there's even an element of chance in this. You know? So you accumulated all this past experience and information and everything, but not necessarily all of it gets to have a vote when the decision is made. There's also a certain element of chance. But the, the idea that we are the ones making decisions is an, an illusion. But what's really interesting is that life consists of an infinite series of decisions. Some big ones and some little ones. But you make thousands of little tiny decisions every day. At least thousands of little tiny decisions every day. And some decisions are no decision because the deciding factors are very heavily weighted one way or the other. But there are a certain number of decisions that are very precisely weighted and could go, they really could go either way. They're a total 50-50 proposition. And really the way, the real decisions are those that could go either way. They aren't predetermined. They're not 60-40 or 20-80 or something like that. They're 50-50. Now, is there a you that's making those decisions. Or if there is, what is the nature of this you that makes those decisions? Is there a difference when you're present versus when you're not? Do, do what? Is there a difference in the decision when you're present versus when you're not? The, is there a difference in the decision when you're present? Their pre- meaning, which is present. The when you're aware versus... When you're aware. There, there, yes, there is, there is a difference. Um, and this is... Uh, when you are aware you're making a decision, don't you kind of uh, call for other factors? If, 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 if you are having trouble deciding yay or nay on something, you, you, you call upon your mind to present other, other views, other influences, things like that. So it really starts to become, it becomes a real decision process there. Not just, a, not just an acting out of a decision that's already made. You start to call upon your different mental resources. And this is where it becomes really, uh, really, you have the potential to determine the course of your evolution in your life. Because if everything were predetermined, no, right? If everything were predetermined, there'd be no point in doing anything. You're not gonna change, you can't change anything. Even even having the thought that you could or could not change something is something that's predetermined and has some meaning by itself. But the fact is, there are all these moments where things could go either way. And so you call upon you, the collective you, calls upon the resources of that collective. And there's all kinds of things that are not terribly consequential in any given moment that can end up playing a large role in the future. Uh, Your values, the morality that you follow, the knowledge and wisdom you have, how has that been acquired? Most of the time you didn't go out and deliberately seek it. Most of it has come through little decisions that they really were decisions because you could have gone to the movie or gone to the Dharma talk or whatever it is. But for whatever reason, some part of you thought it might be better to go to the Dharma talk. So you absorb those ideas and then it keeps evolving in that way. 
This is one of the reasons that the Buddha said that noble companions is the whole of the holy life. Because if you, if the people you associate with, if they are wise, if they are noble, if they are virtuous, then you are you are going to be continuously influenced by their presence, and it's going to have a profound effect on who you are subsequently, who you are in the future, what decisions you make when there's a true decision to be made, when it hasn't already been made in a deterministic way by your past experience. So this is, this is how we evolve. And when we're lucky enough that we're brought to the place of learning to do something like meditation, where we can begin to examine who we are and discover these different things that make us up. Now we're starting to really work with the stuff of which we consist. We're not sort of blind to what we are, passing through the world, accumulating influences randomly here and there, hither and thither, and just being the accidental result of that. Through introspection, and through self-examination, and through meditation, and through contemplation, we, we begin to be actively self-creating beings. And that becomes very special. Then we make decisions, but we're making the decisions all of the time. We're not making, the, not necessarily making the decision when the choice presents itself to us. We're making the decisions in all of the things that lead up to who we are that confronts the choice. So in the moment, in the present moment, we are what we are, and the universe is what it is. And if we're fortunate enough that when we're at a decision point, when there's a possibility to take wholesome action or not to, or to take unwholesome action or so forth, when we come to that point of decision, hopefully we have created ourselves in such a way that it truly is a decision, that we have the resources that we can call upon to make that decision in the right way. But even there, if you come to the point of being able to transcend this separate selfhood that you're so attached to, then, then the decision becomes a non-decision. Uh, not because you're living in a deterministic universe, but because you've transcended so much of the false basis and the false bias by which you may, may have made the wrong decision to the degree that you have opened up to, to suchness, you know, become a tathagata, gone to suchness, or have opened up to God, opened your heart up to God, uh, however you want to think of it. To the degree that you've been able to do that, then God or Buddha nature or whatever it is, is going to resolve it for you. You're going to make the right decision because there's going to be no decision to be made. There's going to be only one course of action. And then you're truly in the flow. Then you're completely in the flow. There's all kinds of different degrees of flow that you can be in. But that's the ultimate one. That's, that's where the Buddha is. When they say of the Buddha that the mind of the Buddha is in nirvana while the body and speech of the, Buddha, of the Buddha are in the marketplace. The body and speech of the Buddha for 45 years to go through the world acting totally in this flow because the mind of the Buddha was in that place of oneness, of unity, of the tathagata, of the suchgon, dasgon. That's the meaning of that. So, All of these are flow, and that's the ultimate flow. And the further along you go with this, the more 
flow becomes choiceless. And even before it becomes choiceless, the easier the choices become, because the choices themselves are part of the flow. Gone on, droned on in a long voice here while you're sitting here digesting lunch and getting dozy. <laughs> Let's take a break.